0: Welcome to all of you, and uh, if you're visiting with us, especially to you, and we ask you now to take your Bible. If you do not have one, you'll find one in the racks in front of you. You can certainly use one of those to follow along. Turn to the book of Exodus, chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20, that is where we'll be this morning. That's where we've been as we return to this study, Exodus chapter 20. Again, we do return this week to our study on this well-known and foundational chapter of God's Word. One of, in fact, the most well-known portions of God's Word. This is a look, of course, at the Ten Commandments, or as Scripture refers to them, and we'll see this later in Exodus, the Ten Words, the Ten Words. Ten words, by way of recap this morning, that reveal their source. They reveal their origin, and who is that? It's Almighty God, the source of these ten words. We've looked at this, this is His character revealed. These words flow right from our God, they flow right out of His person, who He is. These words are Him made manifest, that's what these words are. These words of God are also a grounding for the people of God. We've tracked with the people of God in Exodus, and we see at the birth of a nation, these words are foundational. Ten words given to God's people, remember, out of Egypt, now a newly birthed nation. By way of, we would call them a founding constitution, if you will, these are their words of life. And life lived. From these words, all the other words of the law flow. We've talked about the 613, right, that you see in the Pentateuch. All of those flow from these, the fountainhead, the ten. These words also, again, as we remind ourselves, are both national and personal. These words are, in a sense, corporate, the collective. Right, that corporate you, as you see it throughout the text, as a group, in other words, Israel, as a group, do this. Yet, at the same time, these words addressed to each individual citizen. These words, the divine standard for each human being. Every human being accountable to this law and this standard. We also consider that these words are the law of liberty. You can see how each one gets more challenging for us, with maybe our preconceived notions of the Ten Commandments. This is, in fact, the law of liberty. These words are God's law, yes, but God's law and standard to freedom. God's law, as it has always been, remember, since that first law in the garden? It's always been a law onto freedom. Always. It's not a law of restriction, but a law of liberty. In fact, to life, a law that guards from death. That's a law. Remember Psalm 119.44. The psalmist says, I will keep your law continually forever and ever. And as a result, what does he go on to say? I shall walk in a wide place. I shall walk in liberty. I shall walk in freedom. That's keeping the law of God. My continued prayer for you, Westmount, in this study of the ten words is to see this, that you would see these words as the law of liberty, that they are the way, the way of life. Also, we remember the context of these words, where and when they appear. Remember these words on Sinai arrive after the works in Egypt, so important. And not just Sinai after Egypt, but also Moses after Abraham. The original sovereign promise to Abraham, remember 400 years earlier, initiated by God. That promise, that covenant still stands 400 years later. And we need to know that there's nothing new going on here on Sinai. God's not doing a, a, a 2.0. He's not looking at another way to galvanize his people. No, this is flowing out of that original promise. These words summed up in the 10 words, simply flowing tethered, connected, coming from that original promise. God first promised, then delivered on that promise. Remember, we looked at that in Exodus. He indeed freed his people. And he continues with the promise. Now, for those people, those redeemed people, to be a blessing to all nations. God is faithful to do that. He's faithful to do that. Then he said his words before his people. Here it is, words to live by as his redeemed people, as a light to the nations. As a light to the nations. And those words, church, remain before us today. In fact, what you're looking at is a window into the higher divine law of God. Again, this is not under the dispensation of Moses and all its Mosaic law, little cultural pieces and ceremonial pieces. No, but what it does point to is the higher transcendent Always their law for every administration, every dispensation. Now, these ten words and the eternal character of God they reveal point to here it is for God's people of all time. Whether Israel or the church, God's people are all time. They're called to this, called to live out the character of the one that redeemed them. That's what's going on here. You can see. Different people, in a sense, Israel and the church, but the marching order is the same. Do you see that? It's exactly the same. He is your purchaser. He is your redeemer. He has freed you. Now live out him. Now live out him. It makes sense. Now, before we recap the first two commands, the first two words, let's refocus our attention on this text. Look with me at Exodus 20. We'll give it a summative reading, again, as we uh, proceed forward. Those are indeed your words. Those ten words are holy words set apart because they are who you are. They reveal your character. They reveal all that you are in perfection, Lord. That is what we have just read. Illuminate our eyes to see that. Give us hearts and minds to receive it. Help us to understand. And ultimately, Lord, as we leave this place later, let us live out these words. All to your glory, we pray. Amen. Those are indeed the ten words. And as I mentioned last time, we looked at the first two, which we noted, if you look at them, were found in the first table. It's often referred to the first table. If you look at the first four words or first four commands, and that is because if you look at the first four commands, they deal with our vertical relationship to God. Those first four deal directly with our relationship to God. And then the last six sometimes you hear referred to as the second table, deal with our horizontal relationship to others. That is clear in reading them. And again, we simply need to note by way of recap the implication of that vertical horizontal piece. It tells us that our right and proper relationship with others flows from and follows first a proper relationship with God. There is just so much we can say about that. So much of life's ails. We noted this last time because this is not right first. You can work on all this you want. If this is not right, nothing will be right. We talked about that. Hence, Westmount, we would say this true morality is founded on reverence to God. I cannot say that enough. True morality is founded on reverence to God. That's what true morality is. That's why any efforts for morality that are not rooted and tethered to a holy God, hear me, are meaningless. Any efforts to morality that are not in light of a holy God are meaningless. Every good neighbor, every good deed, all of those things, without reverence to holy God. book of Isaiah says this, Proverbs says it is meaningless. We need God first. We noted how this reality is not just found in the Old Testament, but it's all over the New Testament. Consider the law summary and the order given by Jesus in his ministry. We noted this last week too. Matthew 22, Jesus said, all the law can be summed up in just two commands. And they were this, note the order, love God first, love neighbor second. Jesus said, all of the law hinges on those. The New Testament epistles, of course, also confirm this reality. God first, gospel first. That's the foundation laid out in the opening chapters of Paul's letters. But then, and only with that foundation first, then you have the life lived out. Then the life with neighbor, with gospel understood, then life with neighbor, in relation to neighbor, loving him, loving her. And so we embarked on studying the first two vertical words and love for God. In the first commandment, the first word, we looked at proper and right theology. Do you remember that? Look at verse 3. It simply said this You shall have no other gods before me. Although this was important for Israel coming out of a polytheistic society, right? Think about like Egypt and its pantheon of gods. You remember the ten plagues and the gods they represented? They were in that. The pantheon of gods was in that. Although this first word was applicable to Israel then, here it is. It's lost no force today. It's lost no force today. We too live in a land of many gods. Many, many gods, in fact. Is that not true? This is the stuff of false theology. And what the first word speaks directly against Beloved, we have gods of stuff. We have gods of self. All with their little altars in our calendars. We have those gods, don't we? We know them well. In fact, I would submit to you, friends, our gods are hardly hidden anymore. They're not household tucked away gods in a saddle. They're right out there. In fact, they're on full display. I would just simply say this. How can it be a wonder that the so-called church struggles with so much today. Have you ever wondered that? Why does the church struggle with this? Why is the church not doing this? Is it any wonder that the church struggles when so many in the church have so many other gods before God? Is it any wonder? No. Westmount, the first word of God's law here is about our proper theology. God alone. God alone. There is no other. God's people have no other gods before him. Then, of course, we examine the second commandment, the second word. Look at verse 4. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness at all. That, verse 5, you would bow down and serve. And that's really important. You don't only make the carved image, but you're going to bow down and worship it. That, of course, would be idol worship or simply idolatry, which is the worship, the reverence, the devotion given to something else other than God. Remember this word on the heels of the first command the first word means we can recognize we can study we can even call on the true god and get our theology proper get that right all the while though giving him improper worship and we looked at that last time we saw this and again we'll later in Exodus with the incident of the golden calf remember they claimed this is a feast to the lord This is a feast to the Lord, right theology, all the while worshiping a statue, idolatrous worship, wrong worship, improper worship. Beloved, we need to make that clear. That's wrong worship, wrong worship, because there's only one God and only one God alone. There is no mother. It's wrong worship because the one God is the only one to be worshipped. He didn't outsource worship to others. He didn't say, that's okay, just claim it to me, and that kind of worship's okay. No, he said it to me, God said. And any rival false idolatrous worship kindles the wrath of a jealous God. Verse 5, he is zealous, in fact, for the worship that's due him alone and rightly to him. Wrong worship, as verse 5 also shows us, has lasting effects in future generations. This plagues humanity today. This plagues the church today. This is what we're looking at. The fathers, the mothers that worship falsely, that import idols to the family. They worship other carved images, the flat screens, the blue screens that worship other engagements besides the gathered church. Now, worship time, hence devoted to other gods as we'll talk about next week, Sunday morning has become anything but reverent and sacred. It's all about convenience. No surprise then, beloved. Listen, no surprise. We will see lasting effects for the immediate generations to come. And when you hear people say, I don't understand they were brought up X, Y, and Z, maybe we begin to put the dots together. However, those that look at verse 6, worship rightly. Here's the hope. Here's the, the pickup. Those that worship rightly and love God and keep his commandments that worship truly by way of obedience, simply living the way that God prescribes, not living by whims, not living by fear of anything but God, not living by fleshly desires or slaves to convenience. Those that live under his lordship. Look at the promise. Such true worshipers will see the steadfast has said love of God. Manifest for the next generation? No, what did we study last time? Manifest for generation upon generation upon generation to thousands with such a godly legacy laid down. That's proper worship and its effects. And that is where we left off last time. Let's now jump back in and continue with the third commandment. And this, proper words. Look at verse 7. Proper words. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. So you see again, look at that word in whole. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. The word vain there, I want you to look at it, vain means empty, it means worthless, it means without purpose, it means without result. That's what it means. The idea here is a usage of God's name that is thoughtless and flippant. Now, to rightly understand what's being commanded here, we need first to consider some law context. This is just so helpful, especially now as we're really getting into the Ten Words, Ten Commandments. We need to look at a few law passages in the Pentateuch. Just flip two chapters over to Exodus 22. We'll be here downstream, but it's good to peek in here now. Here is where the law is drilled down a bit. We're getting into a text that looks at laws of restitution, making things right. Chapter 22 look at verse 10. Let's just pick it up if a man gives to his neighbor a donkey or an ox or a sheep or any beast to keep safe and it dies or is injured or is driven away without anyone seeing it look at this verse 11 An oath by the Lord shall be between them both to see whether or not he has put his hand to his neighbor's property the owner shall accept the oath and he shall not make restitution. Really helpful there. So let's look at it. The neighbor lends an animal to another neighbor. That's the scene. He's lent out an, an animal, and one of two things can occur upon that loan. One of two things. Number one, an accident. An accident. It died, The animal dies or it's injured. That can happen. That's life, and that is understood in this text. Or two, something malicious, something unnatural. The animal is stolen. Now, to be clear, the text implies this, whether by the borrower who steals the animal or a thief comes to take the animal, either way, either way, something's happened. Now, we're not going to get into all the restitution laws. That's for two chapters. We're going to get to this text and we'll talk all about that later in Exodus. That's not the point for going here. The point we want to highlight here, and here it is, is how that difference is revealed. And I want you to think about this. This happens all the time today. It's one word against another, right? How do you determine that? How do you determine? He says it was stolen. He says it died. It was an accident. Courts are filled with this stuff. He said, she said. How do you determine the two? And this is the point of this text. Well, I want you to look at this Old Testament economy, found in verse 11. An oath by the Lord shall be between them both. An oath, that is a solemn oath, is taken. And we know that it's solemn because it is, look at it, by the Lord. In other words, one swears, one pledges before the Lord what occurred. We see this often in the Mosaic law. Another passage that's saying the same thing. Note this, Deuteronomy 6.13, speaking of living as God's people in the land says, It is the Lord your God you shall fear, him you shall serve, and then listen, And by his name you shall swear. In other words, fearing God, serving God is akin to swearing by God's name. Do you see that? They put the two together, just living life. Presumably under the integrity of our Lord is to live by his name. Live by his name. Now that's not negative here. That's positive. That is a serious divine pledge and oath. That is to claim to fear and. God and to serve God is to say this by God's name, I will live. Do you see that? You're talking about normal commerce here by God's name. I will do such and such by God's name. I will live. That's heavy duty stuff, isn't it? I am doing what I'm doing in the name of God. That's Old Testament stuff here. And this is why, by the way, if you are going to pledge something in the name of the Lord, some of you know this. This is why the Jews don't want to utter the name of God. Because they understood the divine, heavy consequences of, I would say it this way, my paraphrase, the audacity of saying anything in the name of the Lord and not having the integrity to back it up behind it. I hope that makes sense. They were terrified of using God's name in any way that was wrong or improper. They got this. That's why they... Never utter the name of God. They understood the law and the serious divine consequences. Here it is: a vain, empty usage of God's name. Now, this is—I know—as you're sitting there, tremendously difficult to wrap your head around today, right? We, we know nothing like this today. We, we, we have no concept for the weight of God's name today. That—that's a massive understatement. To me even saying it—is it not true? God's name has no import in our society today at all, none, because today an oath before the Lord has zero force in our society. I was reading this week, many of you know this, you know that they no longer require you and nor is it common to swear on a holy Bible in court. And, you know, this is a big conundrum in the courts like, well, what are you going to swear by? Well, just the fact that you said so. And then, if you it's found that you, what you said is wrong, you'll do so there's no higher transcendent think about this accountability isn't this not society today? It's all incumbent on you, the force of you saying that you will and look around incredible so again, that doesn't surprise a group like this I know that's today that's our lawless society. However, back for Israel under the Mosaic law, they would have understood and felt the weight of an oath by the Lord. And here it is. Here's where the weight comes from. These Israelites understood the omniscience and the omnipotence fresh off of Egypt, of Yahweh. They knew they were dealing with something much more than man's cleverness to hide things and to lie and get away with it. You cannot lie and get away with omniscient God. You can't do it. You know, and this is where Christians still feel the force of this today. Even if you fooled everybody else, you haven't fooled God. Right? Numbers 32, be sure your sins will find you out. They understood the divine sovereignty of God. And fresh off Egypt, think about the canvas. God in a massive display, showing and revealing exactly who He is. I mean, nature was just chess pieces to him. That's the kind of God that they would not want to perjure under. Perjury brought consequences like catastrophe, plague, and even death. As Israel discovered, that was just the reality of living under a sovereign God that knows all things, that can do all things and can see all things. Now, along with the personal consequences, that's one, for falsely swearing on God's name, there was actually, and here's where we get higher now, there's an assault on the very name of God himself. Turn with me to Leviticus 19. Again, we're just peeking into various pieces of the Pentateuch here, but Leviticus 19, this is a a portion of Scripture dealing with neighbor treatment, and this is so fascinating because you would think it's just oriented on the horizontal. Leviticus 19, after some short, succinct, horizontal laws in verse 11, we read this. Look at verse 12. You shall not swear by my name falsely, and so, note this word, profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. Do not swear by God's name falsely, so don't do those things falsely in God's name. And why? Look at it. By doing so, you what? You profane the name of your God. Now we're kind of removed even from words here, right? For a moment, these are actions. Actions can be profanity before God. The word, speaking of which for profane there, look at it, means to be used commonly. That's what profane means. And it's interesting, when you think of profanity, it's a word that just means common. In fact, it means to be used commonly are not sacred or set apart. I just think that was interesting. Even English dictionaries I was looking at this week say that. It's something that is not sacred. Interesting. In fact, you know the English word again. You know profane there. And again, where we get profanity, I want you to hear one of those definitions. Cambridge says this, words that show no respect for God, words that are irrelevant or vulgar. Vulgar in the Latin means common, common. So God's law says that swearing falsely is akin, here it is, beloved, swearing falsely is akin to common vulgar speech. Do you see that? Swearing falsely is akin to common vulgar speech. Now we're going to come back to that, but for now, I believe you get the sense here. The third commandment, the third word from God is a foundational one about words. This foundational law states that we are not to speak of God as his people in a vain, empty, common way. Now, we pause for a moment. And I suspect your first response to that, the third word, is something like this. Well, I never speak of God that way. I never speak of God that way. And maybe you're tempted to check out at this point, like, well, that's not me. I don't, I don't speak of God vainly. That's, that's not me. It may be true, my friend, that you have not mouthed the Lord's name in vain. That may be true. However, have you used the Lord's name without purpose? Have you spoke commonly? Beloved, there's so many ways we can show how this commandment at its very heart is violated. There's many ways, but for the sake of time, just a few Number one, do you use the Lord's name in vain when you speak of God without any thought? I really want us to grab this first one. You just speak of God and you don't give it any thought at all. Sure, you may not curse God's name, but do you bring up God's name vainly without even thinking about it? Is God's name uttered in a joke? Is God's name uttered to fill awkward spots in a conversation? You just need something, so let's pull down God. Do you speak of the things of God without giving it any thought? God is so good. God only knows and you don't even realize you're saying it. You're declaring the name of God. Do you speak of God's name without any purpose just because beloved listen to me, that's vain speech. That's vain speech. According to this commandment, listen, Psalm 139:20 says this, it is the enemies of God that take his name in vain. Do you see that? The enemies of God speak thoughtlessly about God, not us. No, beloved, be intentional. Be thoughtful. Even if you need three seconds to stop and think about what you're saying about God, be mindful. Be mindful of our God when you speak of him. Two, do you speak commonly? Or, as we've studied, do you speak profanely? Remember, to profane God's name in God's law means to speak commonly. Now, we're not talking about simple speech here. Listen to me. We're not talking about short sentences or small words. Let's just immediately squash that defense. Listen to me. Profane or profanity is not simple or short, but it is common. That's the key. It is common. And I think it is clear how ungodly the common tongue is. Would you not agree? How ungodly the common tongue is. The common tongue today is, of course, filled with all color of profanity. It's on vogue. Did you ever think you'd see a day where politicians curse and they don't think twice about it? It's on vogue to be profane. That is ungodly speech that includes foul language Expletives and indeed cursing In fact grab this beloved The fact did, what's it called cursing? Do you know why it's called cursing? Because cursing has always been anti-god speech Every time we use a curse word we're setting ourselves against god In fact, that's why it's called cursing because it's vulgar It's anti-god Yet such cursing is also found exiting the mouths of christians Too many Christians, I would say. And in light of that, I need to ask this. I know this is hard for some, but it needs to be asked in light of this text. Is it in any way glorifying to Yahweh to swear? Or does a swearing Christian set you apart from others? Well, there's the Christians and then the swearing Christians and they're okay and they're relevant. Listen to me. Is there anything compelling about a professing believer that uses profanity? I had to chuckle putting this together. There was, of course, a very famous preacher, and I won't even name his name, a few years ago, that made a name for himself because he stood in the pulpit and he swore. Do you know where that preacher is now? He is in exile in Arizona. Kicked out of the ministry for all kinds of other transgressions. Yet a few years ago, it was cool to say, thus says the Lord, and throw in a few expletives. I want you to listen on the argument that it's relevant it draws people in, because that was his argument. We're relevant when we swear. I want you to listen very closely to Psalm 40, verse 3. He put a new song in my mouth, the song of praise to our God. Why? Something holy, something sacred. Why? Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. People are compelled not by cursing, but by words of praise. When they hear you singing to God and using speech that is godly, that's what draws them in. Certainly that was true for me as an unbeliever. It wasn't professing believers that cursed. Now, it's true, I've heard swearing defenses and I've heard many, beloved, let me tell you, I've heard many that defend swearing Christians and they range anywhere from this. It's harmless. It's habit. It's legalistic. Have you heard that one? It's legalistic. It's legalistic. And on it goes, all in a staunch defense of profanity. Now listen, such defenses hardly deserve a response, but we must do in light of a text like this. Let us just pull just a few snippets of God's word to respond to that. Of course, broadly, there's First Corinthians ten thirty-one that says this. So whatever you eat or drink or whatever you do, presumably, your words, you do all the what? The glory of God. Every word glorifying to God. The parallel verse in Colossians actually ties that to the third commandment. Listen to this. Colossians 317. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. That's echoing the third commandment. Giving thanks to God the Father through him. The eighth verse of that very same chapter says this and put of the put off, put on, listen to this, put away, it can't be more specific than this, put away any obscene talk from your mouth. Colossians 3 verse 8. That's about as clear as it gets. What about Ephesians? The book of Ephesians. Also in a put off section says this again clearly let there be no filthiness nor foolish talk nor crude joking which are what in god's economy the text says out of place but instead let there be thanksgiving a chapter before again there's just so much we could go to here look at ephesians 4:29 let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion and then listen to this why that it may give grace to those who hear. There's your text for those that would say it's relevant to swear, and people think we're cool and all of those things. No, the actual way you would evangelize, not you would ever do that in that way, the true way we do that is gracious words that are holy and sacred. That's how it says people around us get grace. It's obvious the profane speech does not build up. It hardly needs to be said. It hardly needs to be said The profanity does not give grace to those who hear. And speaking of grace, if you struggle with profanity and have said, I can't help it, I offer you this verse. Write this one down, please. Titus 2.11. Titus 2.11, it says this, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. And it's a wonderful thing to have and talk about. That's not what it says. <laughs> What does it say? The grace of God has appeared in what? Here is the cause and here is the effect. The effect is training us to renounce ungodliness and note this, worldly passions and to live, here it is, self-controlled, upright and godly lives in the present age. Don't get out your eraser in God's Word because that's so convicting. Don't do that. It's tr- the Holy Spirit trains us to be self-controlled, trains us to be godly. God's grace trains you to live a sacred life, not a common one. God's grace, what you received at salvation, you would claim grace at salvation, right? But would you claim grace and sanctification? Well, you must because the Bible tells us that we have grace in our sanctification. Right here, what you receive at salvation is through in all lives and it's how you are self-controlled. God's grace this is how your speech is upright how your words are proper, the grace of God. Listen, if you're in Christ saved by grace, there is no excuse for profanity. In Christ, there's no saying, well, you know what, Jason, I can't. That's not an option for grace. I can't is not something in God's vocabulary in His grace. I submit to you 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation has overtaken you that is what? Not common to man if you struggle with profanity you're not alone and here it is God is faithful and it goes on to say "What? Well, how is he faithful he will provide a way of escape sometimes it's just two seconds to say no I, I can't say that I can't say that listen a holy mouth clean speech is not as elusive as it's made out to be it's not like climbing Mount Everest it's a matter of yielding to the grace of God I want to be frank with you this morning with a hard text like this for some. I have heard the testimony of sailors, right? The foulest of mouths. And I don't believe it. I don't believe it. I look at them, some in seminary, and I say, how is that you? I've never heard anything even crass come out of your mouth. And I want you to know it's true of even me. There was a time where I had a very foul mouth. Very foul I swore all the time. And I'm not here to say that like I'm some champion. I'm here to say the grace of God, if he can change me, beloved, he can change you. He was like, why are you so worked up about these things? Because the grace of God changes lives. That's what he does. He takes habits and he kills them. Brothers and sisters, profanity has no place in any way in your life at all. There is no God understands. Get rid of it. There is no God understands. There's no soft peddling. Profanity is sin. Kill it. Kill it. Three. Are your words so common that they're virtually meaningless? Are your words so common that they're virtually meaningless? You say, I don't use the Lord's name in vain. You say, after all that, well, I'm not one of those people that struggles with profanity. I don't use vulgarities. The question hangs over this text. Are your words meaningful? Turn to Matthew 5. Do your words have meaning? This, of course, is a Sermon on the Mount. When we import Jesus as he does so often, we'll be back in here a few times through the Ten Commandments. He says, you've heard it said, this is the Old Testament law, but I say to you, in other words, Jesus is going to give us all kinds of new covenant color. The transcendent divine law that we need to hear. Let's pick it up in verse 33 and much of this will be familiar, right? Again, you've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely. There it is, but shall perform to the Lord what you've sworn. You see that we've that's what we're reading. But Jesus says, I say to you, do not take an oath at all. Either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not, look at this, take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. And then grab this, verse 37, let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more is what? Anything more than this comes from evil. That's right, Jesus said that. Let what you say be yes or no. Do you need to add to your speech? I swear to God this is true. Do you need to add that? Do you need to add? I'm telling you the truth. No, honestly, honestly. Do you need to add that to your words? Do you need to add, beloved, anything at all to your yes or you know? Or, does your yes and your no have weight and meaning simply on your own? Are you one of those people that say, say you know what, he said yes, and he means yes. doesn't need any adjectives or fancy documents. Like sacred words from saved souls should. This should be commonplace for the Christian. Consider this from James 5.12. But above all, brothers, that's us, to believers, do not swear either by heaven or Or by earth or any other oath. But listen, let your yes be yes and your no be no. And then a warning. Listen to this. So that you may not fall under condemnation. That's the New Testament. That's James. So that you don't fall under condemnation for all your supportive words. Beloved, are your words meaningless? Do your words need support? This is the stuff we laud and love of generations that's gone by. The handshake stuff? Yeah, they shook on it so it's done. They don't need lawyers. They shook on it. Your word is your word. Now I'll ask you something. If you know someone like that, is that attractive? The person who, you know what, I can count on their word and they will never lie and go back on their word. We hardly know of such meaningful words today because our words lack integrity. Beloved, heed the warning here. Empty words fall under condemnation, says the word of God condemnation guilt that's a new testament warning and it's also nothing new turn back to exodus this is nothing new the condemnation for such words look at back in verse 7 you shall not take the name of the lord your god in vain and then look at this why for the lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain for those using improper words the lord look at what it says will not hold them guiltless that's right. Proper words are sobering. They are serious business in the economy of God. And remember, this is Old Testament and New Testament. This is the call for proper words all the time, not just at sometimes. And I need to press this one more time. There are not certain times where it's OK and that God would understand. Don't put on your public mouth and just make sure you've got clean speech when you're around other people, but your family would say otherwise. Otherwise. Proper words all the time that glorify God all the time for those in your home, for generations to come, for all of those proper words. Why and why is this important? Why am I, beloved, standing before you pressing this point at great risk of making you very uncomfortable? Why? Because at the end of time, the Bible says we will all be called to account for every single word we speak. Did you know that? Turn to Matthew 12. Matthew 12. Jesus could not have been clearer about this. In Matthew 12, we're just going to pick it right up in verse 36. He's talking about a tree that is giving off fruit and that you know what kind of tree it is by the fruit it gives. And in the middle of that discourse that you would recognize who one is, he says this, verse 36, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. Do you see that? That is, look at verse 36, answering for every thoughtless utterance that references God's name. That is answering for every so-called innocent profanity. That is answering for every meaningless word needed to bolster your yes and your no. If those have been your words, beloved, beloved, I call on you to repent. If those have been your words, I call on you now to repent. Confess them for what they are vain words common words ungodly words Confess it repent turn from them and embrace his words his proper words words of meaning godly sacred words because if you do truly From the heart from the inside out if you do truly in the end on that day of judgment. Here's your hope grab this Here's your hope. It won't be those meaningless utterances, your profanities or your pumped up yeses or your jacked up noes. It won't be that. Those won't be the words held to your account before the judgment throne. It will be your other words of confession. It will be your other words of confession. The words of faith placed in your heart by a holy God, the only name that saves that you confess, Romans 10, 9. If you confess with your mouth, Proper words. If you confess with your mouth, what? Jesus is Lord. That is because there is no other word, there is no other name to confess. And believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be what? Saved. Saved. And that is precisely what Jesus confirmed in the same passage on words in Matthew 12. I hope it's still open. We just keep reading. The next verse, look what he says. Verse 37, for by your words, what? You will be justified. That's proper words. Proper words summed up in one word, the only proper name Jesus Christ. And now I ask us all, in light of the text of God's word, always stretching, always growing us, always pushing us, embrace it. Embrace it. Repent if you need to, turn to Him anew. Let's do this in this season together. Come, renew, tune afresh your heart and confess him. and Let's sing to him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word that's so clear about our speech. Oh God, forgive us for our self-defenses on our words. And Lord, we pray that you would indeed renew our minds, the renewed hearts, so that you would help us, Father. Help us, Father, to use words that glorify you. God, that's our prayer. And not just because it's a right and good and a morally upstanding thing to do before you, Father. That is good. But in these times, these broken and dark, oppressive times, may we use proper words as we learned in our text today so they would be an aroma to others. So the songs that come out of our mouth would draw others to the one true God. Oh, God, may that be true. We beg now. In the name of Christ Jesus, our Savior, amen.